The more clearly you understand yourself and your emotions, the more you become a lover of what is. You are listening to Addiction Support Podcast, episode number 32. Hi, Oak Creek Wellness family. Welcome to Addiction Support Podcast, where I talk with inspiring people who share their knowledge and experience of addiction and what's working for them. This is addiction support for family and friends from people who've been there. I'm your host, Melissa Sue Tucker. Welcome back to another episode of the Addiction Support Podcast. I'm your host, Melissa Sue Tucker, and I wanted to check in and see how you guys are doing. I know I've been MIA a couple times this month, and <clears throat> excuse me, please bear with me today. My voice is coming back, so that's exciting, but it's been gone for about a week and a half now, so I'm fighting that cold. Hopefully you guys are not fighting it and you stay healthy. I am on the mend, and if my voice sounds annoying today, I truly apologize. Doing the best I can, but I didn't want to go another week without talking to you guys. You know, in a lot of ways, you guys just keep me going. So I'm going to give you a little bit of an update and an overview of what we're going to do today. So the update is my brother, who you guys know have been on the journey with me a little bit. He is currently in jail awaiting, I think, his trial, which is the next step. And the amazing thing is we've been able to communicate at least once a week. We've been able to talk and he's very clear that when he gets out this time, he wants to go to rehab. He understands now that getting sober in jail or getting sober-ish in jail, as the case may or may not be, um, is not the same thing as going to rehab and getting treatment for the disease and the illness as well as working on you know, himself doing therapy sessions, doing some of the hard work, learning some of the life skills and coping skills. So he's super clear that he wants to go to rehab when he gets out of jail. He would love it to be out of state somewhere. So I'm just working with him on that. Hopefully we will get, you know, whatever it looks like, whenever it comes down and when I can talk a little bit more about what the specifics are, I will. I definitely believe that people should be accountable for their actions. So if he broke the law, then I believe that he should do the time for doing that. However, or in addition to, I also think that we need to treat the illness. So, you know, if you have somebody that you love that's currently in jail, just know that being locked up, I guess here's what I want to say. Addiction is a mind disease. It's a mental disease. And it's tied in very closely to traumas, traumas that happened in our past. Um, They can be recent, they can be childhood. When somebody goes to jail or goes to prison, they have to learn a whole new way of being. And a lot of times there's trauma that happens in jail as well. In order for them to cope in those situations, they have to be a certain person to show up a certain way. And that way does not support life when they're on the outside. So keep that in mind for whatever it's worth. I just feel intuitively like I need to say that to you. The other thing, a large part of treating this illness is people need to be safe and feel safe and going in and unpacking some of that trauma and looking at it, creating a new story around it, creating a new relationship around it, but first accepting that that's part of what happened and part of what is. And jail's not, at least from what I've seen, my experience in Arizona, it's not a safe place to do that. So these are all things that we need to keep in mind when we have somebody going through this. Um, 
the other thing that I think is important, my brother had mentioned that he felt really bad about relapsing. And I think relapsing is just part of it. You know, when we have a child and they're learning how to walk, we don't expect them never to fall down again. As a matter of fact, we just encourage them to keep getting back up. And if you have somebody that's working on their sobriety and working on their recovery, I'm not saying make excuses. I'm not saying buy it for them or give them money or anything like that. I'm just saying, you know what? If they relapse, that's part of learning. That's part of it. And you just want to come from that, you know, how would you treat a child? Like, okay, that's okay. We're going to get back up. Let's keep going. You can do this. That type of an attitude is going to go a lot farther in encouraging somebody in their sobriety than getting mad at them because, you know, here we go again and, oh, you did it again and all that. That's not going to serve anybody. They're already doing that to themselves. They don't need us to do that to them as well. So that's my update there. Um, Another thing that I want to talk to you guys about is the book Loving What Is by Byron Katie. And so we've had a few people on the show that I've mentioned it. Um, I think Kevin and Christina did. So I'll link to that podcast episode. I've had other people that have told me about it. Basically, Byron Katie, she breaks it down into four questions that can change your life. So for the next, I don't even know how many it's going to be because I don't have this completely planned out. But the next few episodes, we're going to be taking a deeper dive into this book and almost doing like a book club a virtual podcasting book club. So I'll go through and I'll read some of the book to you. And then at the end, I'm going to ask you guys some questions. And what I think would work probably best is if you have a notepad handy and you know, if you're listening to this when you're out running around, you can always pause it and come back when you're in a place where you want to sit down and, and process. But what I've found is actually taking the time to write out things, even if you don't think it's that deep or that involved. I've always been able to grow exponentially by actually taking action. So I'm going to challenge you to take the time and work through this, do some of the work. I'm going to be doing this too. This isn't me sitting here on my microphone saying, oh, I know everything and I'm just going to have you do it. That's not the case. I'm going to be working through it on my own and I'm excited to see what comes out of that. So today I'm going to read some of the foreword and just give you the context of the book, give you the opportunity to decide if you want to choose in or choose out of this process. And then what I would encourage you to do is get a copy of the book, go to your local bookstore. I love bookstores. I love actual books and holding them and feeling them. Um, So support your local bookstore. If that's not something that you have time to do or there's not a good bookstore in your area, I'll be sure to link up on this, the show notes for this episode, which will be addictionsupportpodcast.com forward slash episode 32. I'll have a link to Amazon where you can buy it. And I'll have a link if you want to get the audiobook. I'll have a link to the Audible trial so that you can do that that way as well. Both of those are my affiliates. So if you go through and sign up with them, it will not cost you anymore. However, I will make a little bit of money. I want to let you know that. Thank you in advance for supporting me by doing that. And with no further ado, I'm just going to jump into loving what is. Erica Jong, author of Fear of Flying, says, Suppose you could find a simple way to embrace your life with joy, stop arguing with reality, and achieve serenity in the midst of chaos. That is what loving what is offers. It is no less than a revolutionary way to live your life. The question is, are we brave enough to accept it? 
So that's a little snippet of um, the praise for loving what is. And I'm going to jump right in here to the forward or the introduction. Starts with, the more clearly you understand yourself and your emotions, the more you become a lover of what is. The first time I watched the work, which is capitalized, I realized that I was witnessing something truly remarkable. What I saw was a succession of people, young and old, educated and uneducated, who were learning to question their own thoughts, the thoughts that were most painful to them. With the lovingly incisive help of Byron Katie, everyone calls her Katie, these people were finding their way not only towards the resolution of their immediate problems, but also towards a state of mind in which the deepest questions are resolved. I've spent a good part of my life studying and translating the classic texts of the great spiritual trans of the great spiritual traditions, and I recognize something very similar in process here. At the core of these traditions, in works such as Book of Job, the I'm probably going to butcher this, you guys, I am sorry, but the Tao Te Ching and the Bhagavad Gita, and it's B-H-A-G-A-V-A-D-G-I-T-A, I apologize for pronouncing any and all of those incorrectly, there's an intense questioning about life and death and a profound joyful wisdom that emerges as an answer. The wisdom, it seems to me, was the place Katie was standing in and the direction where these people were headed. As I watched from my seat in a crowded community center, five men and women, one after another, were learning freedom through the very thoughts that had caused their suffering. Thoughts such as, my husband betrayed me, or my mother doesn't love me enough. Simply by asking four questions and listening to the answers they found inside themselves, these people were opening their minds to profound, spacious, and life-transforming insights. I saw a man who had been suffering for decades from anger and resentment towards his alcoholic father light up before my eyes and within 45 minutes. I saw a woman who had been almost too frightened to speak because she had just found out that her cancer was spreading in the session in a glow of understanding and acceptance. Three out of the five people had never done the work before, yet the process didn't seem to be more difficult for them than it was for the other two, nor were their realizations any less profound. They all began by realizing a truth so basic that is usually invisible, the fact that, in the words of the Greek philosopher Epictetus, we are disturbed not by what happens to us, but by our thoughts about what happens. As soon as they grasped that truth— their whole understanding changed. Before people had experienced the work of Byron Katie for themselves, they often think that it's too simple to be effective. But its simplicity is precisely what makes it so effective. Over the past two years, since Katie and I met, we're now married, I have done the work many times on thoughts I hadn't even been aware of. And I've watched more than a thousand people do it in the public events across the United States and Europe on the whole gamut of human problems. From major illnesses, the death of parents and children, sexual and psychological abuse, addictions, financial insecurities, professional problems, and social issues to the usual frustrations of daily life. Again and again, I've seen the work quickly and radically transform the way people think about their problems. And as the thinking changes, the problems disappear. Suffering is optional, Katie says. Whenever we experience a stressful feeling, anything from mild discomfort to intense sorrow, rage, or despair, we can be certain that there is a specific thought causing our reaction. 
whether or not we are conscious of it. The way to end our stress is to investigate the thinking that lies behind it. And anyone can do it by himself with a piece of paper and pen. The work's four questions, which you will see in context later in this introduction, reveal where our thinking isn't true for us. Through this process, Katie also calls it inquiry, we discover that all the concepts and judgments that we believe or take for granted are distortions of things as they really are. When we believe our thoughts instead of what is really true for us, we experience the kinds of emotional distress that we call suffering. Suffering is a natural alarm, warning us that we're attaching to a thought. When we don't listen, we come to accept this suffering as an inevitable part of life. It's not. The work has striking similarities with the Zen Cohen and the Socratic dialogue, but it doesn't stem from any tradition, Eastern or Western. It is American, homegrown and mainstream, having originated in the mind of an ordinary woman had, who had no intention of originating anything. To realize your true nature, you must wait for the right moment and the right conditions. When the time comes, you are awakened as if from a dream. You understand that what you have found is your own and doesn't come from anywhere outside. That's a Buddhist sutra. The work was born on a February morning in 1986 when Byron Catherine Reed, a 43-year-old woman from a small town in the high desert of Southern California, woke up on the floor of a Halifoy house. In the midst of an ordinary life, two marriages, three children, a successful career, Katie had entered a 10-year-long downward spiral into rage, paranoia, and despair. For two years, she was so depressed that she could seldom manage to leave her house. She stayed in bed for weeks at a time, doing business by telephone from her bedroom, unable to even bathe or brush her teeth. Her children would tiptoe past her door to avoid her outbursts of rage. Finally, she checked into a halfway house for women with eating disorders, the only facility that her insurance company would pay for. The other residents were so frightened of her that she was placed alone in an attic room. One morning, a week or so later, as she lay on the floor, she had been feeling too unworthy to sleep in a bed. Katie woke up without any concepts of who she was or what she was. There was no me, she says. All my rage, all the thoughts that had been troubling me, my whole world, the whole world, was gone. At the same time, laughter welled up from the depths and just poured out. Everything was unrecognizable. It was as if someone or something else had woken up. It opened its eyes. It was looking through Katie's eyes, and it was so delighted. It was intoxicated with joy. There was nothing separate, nothing unacceptable to it. Everything was its very own self. When Katie returned home, her family and friends felt like she was a different person. Her daughter, Roxanne, who was 16 at the time, says, We knew that the constant storm was over. She'd always yelled at me and my brothers and criticized us. I used to be scared to be in the same room with her. Now she seemed completely peaceful. She would sit still for hours on the window seat or out in the desert. She was joyful and innocent, like a child. She seemed to be filled with love. People in trouble started knocking on our door, asking her for help. She'd sit with them and ask them questions, mainly, is that true? When I'd come home miserable with a problem like, my boyfriend doesn't love me anymore, mom would look at me as if she knew that wasn't possible, and she asked me, honey, how could that be true? As if I had just told her that we were living in China. Once people understood that the old Katie wasn't coming back, they began to speculate about what had happened to her. Had some miracle occurred? She wasn't much help to them. It was a long time before she could describe her experience intelligently. 
She would talk about freedom that had woken up inside her. She also said that through an inner questioning, she had realized that all her old thoughts were untrue. Shortly after Katie got back from the halfway house, her home began to fill with people who had heard about her and had come to learn. She was able to communicate her inner inquiry in the form of specific questions that anyone who wanted freedom could apply on his own without her. Soon she began to be invited to meet with the small gatherings in people's living rooms. Her host often asked her if she was enlightened. She would answer, I'm just someone who knows the difference between what hurts and what doesn't. In 1992, she was invited to Northern California, and the work spread very fast from there. Katie accepted every invitation. She had been on the road almost constantly since 1993, demonstrating the work in churches' basements, community centers, and hotel meeting rooms, in front of small and large audiences. And the work has found its way into all kinds of organizations, from corporations, law firms, and therapists' offices, to hospitals, prisons, churches, and schools. It is now popular in other parts of the world where Katie has traveled. All across America and Europe, there are groups of people who meet regularly to do the work. Katie often says that the only way to understand the work is to experience it. But it's worth noting that inquiry fits precisely with current research into the biology of the mind. Contemporary neuroscience identifies a particular part of the brain, sometimes called the interpreter, as the source of the familiar internal narrative that gives us our sense of self. Two prominent neuroscience Scientists have recently characterized the quirky, undependable quality of the tale told by the interpreter. Antonio Damasio describes it this way. Perhaps the most important revelation is precisely this, that the left cerebral hemisphere of humans is prone to fabricating verbal narratives that do not necessarily accord with the truth. And Michael Gazzaniga writes, the left brain weaves its stories in order to convince itself and you that it is in full control. What is so adaptive about having what amounts to a spin doctor in the left brain? The interpreter is really trying to keep our personal story together. To do that, we have to learn to lie to ourselves. These insights, based on solid experimental work, show that we tend to believe our own press releases. Often, when we think we're being rational, we're being spun by our own thinking. That trait explains how we get ourselves into painful positions that Katie recognized in her own suffering. The self-questioning she discovered uses a different, less-known capacity of the mind to find a way out of its self-made trap. After doing the work, many people report an immediate sense of release and freedom from thoughts that are making them miserable. But if their work depended on a momentary experience, it would be far less useful than it is. The work is an ongoing and deepening process of self-realization, not a quick fix. It's more than a technique, Katie says. It brings to life from deep within us an innate aspect of our being. The deeper you go into the work, the more powerful you realize it is. People who have been practicing inquiry for a while often say, the work is no longer something I do, it is doing me. They describe how, without any conscious intention, the mind notices each trustful thought in and does it before it can cause any suffering. Their internal argument with reality has disappeared, and they find that what remains is love. Love for themselves, for other people, and for whatever life brings. The title of this book describes their experience. Loving what is becomes as easy and natural as breathing. Considering that, all hatred-driven hence, the mind recovers radical innocence and learns at last that it is self-delighting, self-appeasing, self-affrightening, 
And that's its own sweet will is Heaven's Will by William Butler Yeats. I have waited until now to introduce the four questions to you because they don't make much sense out of context. The best way to meet them is to see how they function in an actual example of the work. You'll also meet what Katie calls the turnaround, which is a way of experiencing the opposite of what you believe is true. The following dialogue with Katie took place before an audience of about 200 people. Mary, the woman who is sitting opposite Katie on the stage, has filled out a one-page worksheet that asked her to write down her thoughts about someone who upsets her. The instructions are, allow yourself to be as judgmental and petty as you really feel. Don't try to be spiritual or kind. The pettier we can be with the, when we're writing, the more likely it is that we'll benefit from the work. You'll see that Mary hasn't held back at all. She is a forceful woman, perhaps 40 years old, slim, attractive, and dressed in expensive-looking exercise clothes. At the beginning of the dialogue, her anger and impatience are palpable. A first experience of the work as a reader or onlooker can be uncomfortable. It helps to remember that all the participants, Mary, Katie, and the audience, are on the same side here. All of them are looking for the truth. If Katie ever seems to be mocking, you'll realize upon a closer examination that she's making fun of the thought that is causing Mary's suffering, never of Mary herself. Towards the middle of the dialogue, when Katie asks, do you really want to know the truth? She doesn't mean her truth or any abstract, predetermined truth, but Mary's truth, the truth that is hidden behind her troubling thoughts. Mary has entered the dialogue in the first place because she trusts that Katie can help her discover where she is lying to herself. She welcomes Katie's persistence. You'll also notice right away that Katie is very free in her use of terms of endearment. One CEO before a workshop that Katie gave to his top executives felt that he had to issue a warning. If she holds your hand or calls you sweetheart or honey, please don't get excited. She does that with everyone, he said. So now I'm going to jump right into the dialogue and I will do my best to separate it out so you know who's talking and you guys can follow along. Hopefully this is something that will kind of get your mind thinking and ideally, you know, you want to keep going forward with this. So Mary started out, she was reading the statements from her worksheet. I hate my husband because he drives me crazy. Everything about him, including the way he breathes. What disappoints me is that I don't love him anymore and our relationship is a charade. I want him to be more successful, to not want to have sex with me, to get into shape, to get a life outside of me and the children, to not touch me anymore, and to be more powerful. My husband shouldn't fool himself that he's good at our business. He should create more success. My husband's a wimp. He's needy and lazy. He's fooling himself. I refuse to keep living a lie. I refuse to keep living my relationship as an imposter. So Katie says, does that pretty much sum it up? The audience bursts into laughter and Mary laughs along with them. By the sound of the laughter, it seems as though you speak for a lot of people in the room. So let's start at the top and see if we begin to understand what's going on. Mary says, I hate my husband because he drives me crazy. Everything about him, including the way he breathes. So Katie says, your husband drives you crazy. Is it true? This is the first of the four questions. Is it true? Mary says, yes. Katie says, okay. What's an example of that, sweetheart? He breathes? Mary says, he breathes. So Mary says, he breathes. When we're doing conference calls for our business, I can hear his breath on the other end of the telephone and I want to scream. And Katie says, so his breath drives you crazy. Is that true? Mary said, yes. Katie said, can you absolutely know that that's true? That's the second question. Can you absolutely know that it's true? 
Mary says, yes. Katie says, we can all relate to that. I hear that it is really true for you. In my experience, it can't be your husband's breath that drives you crazy. It has to be your thoughts about his breath that are driving you crazy. So let's take a closer look and see if that's true. What are your thoughts about his breath on the phone? Mary says that he should be more aware that he's breathing loudly during a conference call. And Katie says, how do you react when you think that thought? That's the third question. How do you react when you think that thought? Mary says, I feel like I want to kill him. Katie says, so what's more painful, the thought you attach to his breathing or his breathing? Mary said, the breathing is more painful. I'm comfortable with the thought that I want to kill him. Mary laughs and so does the audience. You can keep that thought. That's the beautiful thing about the work. You can keep all your thoughts. Mary said, I've never done the work before, so I don't know any of the right answers. And then Katie responded, your answers are perfect, sweetheart. Don't rehearse. So he's breathing on the phone and you have the thought that he should be more aware and he's not. What's the next thought? Mary said, it brings up every terrible thought I've had about him. Katie, okay, and he's still breathing. He should stop breathing into the phone on the conference call. What's the reality of it? Does he? Mary says, no, I've told him to stop. Katie says, and he still does it. That's reality. What's true is always what's happening, not the story about what should be happening. He should stop breathing on the phone. Is it true? Mary, after a pause, says, no, it's not true. He's doing it. That's what's true. That's reality. Katie says, so how do you react when you think the thought that he should stop breathing in the phone and then he doesn't? And Mary asks, how do I react? I went out. I feel uncomfortable because I know I went out and I know I'm not going anywhere. So then Katie says, let's move back to inquiry, honey, rather than moving further into your story, your interpretation of what's happening. Do you really want to know the truth? Mary says, yes. Katie says, okay. It helps if we stick to one written statement at a time. Can you see a reason to drop the thought that he should stop breathing into the phone? Katie says, okay, it helps if we stick to one written statement at a time. Can you see a reason to drop the thought that he should stop breathing on the phone? This is an additional question that Katie um, sometimes asks. For those of you new to the work, if you hear what I'm asking Mary to drop her story, let me make it very clear. I'm not. This is not about getting rid of thoughts or about overcoming, improving, or surrendering them. None of that. This is about realizing for yourself internal cause and effect. The question is simply, can you see a reason to drop this thought? Mary said, yes, I can. It would be a lot more enjoyable to do conference calls without this thought. Katie said, that's a good reason. Can you find a stress-free reason to keep this thought, this lie that he should stop breathing on the phone? A second additional question. Mary says, no. Katie said, who would you be without that thought? The fourth question, who would you be without that thought? Who would you be while you're on a conference call with your husband if you didn't have the ability to think that thought? Mary said, I'd be much happier. I'd be more powerful. I wouldn't be distracted. Katie said, yes, sweetheart, that's it. It's not his breathing that's causing your problem. It's your thoughts about his breathing because you haven't investigated them to see if they oppose reality in the moment. Let's look at your next statement. Mary says, I don't love him anymore. So Katie asks, is that true? Mary, yes. Katie, okay, good. I hear that. And do you really want to know the truth? Mary, yes. Katie, okay, be still. There's no right or wrong answer. You don't love him. Is that true? 
very silent. If you had to answer honestly, either yes or no, right now, and you had to live forever with your answer, your truth or your lie, what would your answer be? You don't love him. Is that true? There's a long pause, then Mary begins to cry. Mary says, no, it's not true. Katie, that's a very courageous answer. If we answer it that way, with what's really true for ourselves, we think that there may be no way out. Is it true? Is just a question. We're terrified to answer the simplest question honestly because we project what that may mean in the imagined future. We think we have to do something about it. How do you react when you believe the thought that you don't love him? Mary, it makes my whole life a stupid charade. Katie, can you see a reason to drop this thought that you don't love him? And I'm not asking you to drop the thought. Mary, yes, I can see a reason to drop it. Katie, can you think of one stress-free reason to keep the thought? Mary, after a long pause, I think if I keep my story, then I can keep him from wanting to have sex all the time. Katie, is that a stress-free reason? It seems stressful to me. Mary, I guess it is. Katie, can you find one stress-free reason to keep that thought? Mary, oh, I see. No, there aren't any stress-free reasons to keep the story. Katie, fascinating. Who would you be standing with your husband without the thought that you don't love him? Mary, it would be great. It would be fabulous. That's what I want. Katie, I'm hearing that with the thought, it's stressful. And without the thought, it's fabulous. So what does your husband have to do with your unhappiness? We're just noticing here. So I don't love my husband. Turn it around. So after the four questions comes turn around. Mary, I do love my husband. Katie, feel it. It has nothing to do with him, does it? Mary, no, it really doesn't. I do love my husband, and you're right. It doesn't have anything to do with him. Katie, and sometimes you think you hate him, and that doesn't have anything to do with him either. The man's just breathing. You tell the story that you love him, or you tell the story that you hate him. It doesn't take two people to have a happy marriage. It only takes one, you. There's another turnaround. Mary, I don't love myself. I can relate to that one. Katie, and you may think that if you divorce him, then you'll feel good. But if you haven't investigated your thinking, you'll attach these same concepts onto whoever comes into your life next. We don't attach to people or to things. We attach to uninvestigated concepts that we believe to be true in the moment. Let's look at the next statement on your worksheet. Mary, I want my husband to not be needy and not to be dependent on me, to be more successful, to not want to have sex with me, to get into shape, to get a life outside of me and the children, and to be more powerful. Those are just a few. Katie, let's turn the whole statement around. Mary, I want me not to be needy. I want me not to be dependent on him. I want me to be more successful. I want me to want to have sex with him. I want me to get into shape. I want me to get a life outside of him and the children. I want me to be more powerful. Katie, so he shouldn't be needy. Is it true? What's the reality of it? Is he? Mary, he's needy. Katie, he shouldn't be needy is a lie because the guy is needy according to you. So how do you react when you think the thought he shouldn't be needy and in your reality he is needy? Mary, I just want to run away all the time. Katie, who would you be in his presence without the thought he shouldn't be needy? Mary, 
What I just understood is that I could be with him in a space of love instead of just having my defenses up. It's like if I notice any bit of neediness, I'm out of there. I've got to run. That's what I do with my life. Katie, when he's acting needy, in your opinion, you don't say no, honestly. You run away or want to run away instead of being honest with yourself and him. Mary, that's true. Katie, well, it would have to be. You have to call him needy until you can get some clarity and honest communication going with yourself. So let's be clear. You be him and be very needy. I'll take on the role of clarity. Mary, Mr. Needy comes in and says, I just had the best phone call. You got to hear all about it. It was this guy and he was going to be fabulous in the business. And I just had another call. You know, he just goes on and on. I mean, I'm busy. I've got a deadline. Katie, sweetheart, I hear that you had a wonderful phone call. I love that. And I would also like you to leave the room now. I have a deadline to meet. Mary, we have to talk about our plans. When we're going to Hawaii, we have to figure out what airlines. Katie, I hear that you want to talk about our plans for Hawaii, so let's discuss this at dinner tonight. I really want you to leave the room now. I have a deadline to meet. Mary, if one of your girlfriends called, you would talk to her for an hour. Now you can't listen to me for two minutes? Katie, you could be right, and I want you to leave the room now. It may sound cold, but it's not. I just have a deadline to meet. Mary, I don't like to do it like that. Usually I'm just mean to him. I just seethe. Katie, you have to be mean because you're afraid to tell the truth and say no. You don't say, sweetheart, I would like you to leave. I have a deadline because you want something from him. What scam are you running on yourself and on him? What do you want from him? Mary, I'm never straightforward with anybody. Katie, because you want something from us, what is it? Mary, I can't stand when somebody doesn't like me. I don't want disharmony. Katie, so you want our approval? Mary, yes, I want to maintain harmony. Katie, sweetheart, if your husband proves of what you have to say and what you do, then there is harmony in your home. Is that true? Does it work? Is there harmony in your home? Mary, no. Katie, you trade your integrity for harmony in the home. It doesn't work. Spare yourself from seeking love, approval, or appreciation from anyone and watch again what happens in reality just for fun. Read your statements again. Mary, I want my husband not to be needy. Katie, all right, turn it around. Mary, I want me not to be needy. Katie, yes, you need all this harmony. You need his approval. You need his breathing to change. You need his sexuality to change for you. Who's the needy one? Who's dependent on whom? So let's turn the whole list around. Mary, I want myself not to be needy, not to be dependent. Katie, on your husband, perhaps? Mary, I want myself to be more successful. I want myself to not want to have sex with me. Katie, that one would be really legitimate if you sit with it. How many times do you tell the story of how he has sex with you and you hate it? Mary, constantly. Katie, yes, you're having sex with him in your mind and thinking how terrible that is. You tell the story over and over of what it's like having sex with your husband. That story is what's repelling you, not your husband. Sex without a story has never repelled anyone. It's just is what it is. You're having sex or you're not. It's our thoughts about sex that repel us. Write that one out too, honey. You could write a whole worksheet on your husband and sexuality. Mary, I get it. Katie, okay, turn the next statement around. Mary, I want me to get in shape, but I am in shape. Katie, oh, really? How about mentally? Mary, oh, I could work on that. Katie, are you doing the best you can? Mary, yes. 
Katie, well, maybe he is too. He's supposed to be in shape. Is that true? Mary, no, he's not in shape. Katie, how do you react when you believe the thought that he should be in shape and he's not? How do you treat him? What do you say? What do you do? Mary, everything is subtle. I show him my muscles. I don't ever look at him with approval. I don't ever admire him. I don't ever do anything kind in that direction. Katie, okay, close your eyes. Look at yourself looking at him that way. Now look at his face. There's a pause in Mary's eyes. Keep your eyes closed. Look at him again. Who would you be standing there with him without the thought that he should be in shape? Mary, I would look at him and see how handsome he is. Katie, yes, Angel. And you'd see how much you love him. Isn't that fascinating? This is very exciting. So let's just be there a moment. Look at how you treat him, and he still wants to go to Hawaii with you. That's amazing. Mary, what's amazing about this guy is that I'm so horrible and mean, and he just loves me without conditions. It drives me nuts. Katie, he drives you nuts. Is that true? Mary, no, so far it's been my thinking that drives me nuts. Katie, so let's go back. He should be in shape. Turn it around. Mary, I should get in shape. I should get my thinking in shape. Katie, yes, every time you look at him and you're repulsed, get your thinking in shape. Judge your husband, write it down, ask for questions and turn it around. But only if you are tired of the pain. Okay, honey, I think you've got this. Just continue through the rest of the statements on your worksheet. In the same manner, I love sitting with you and welcome the inquiry. Welcome to the work. Step aside from all thinking and there is nowhere you can't go. That's from the third founding teacher of Zen. In loving what is, Katie is giving you everything you need in order to do the work by yourself or with others. The book will guide you step by step through the whole process. And along the way, it will show you many people doing the work directly with Katie. These one-on-one dialogues in which Katie brings her clarity to the most complicated human problems are examples, dramatic examples, some of them, of how ordinary people can find their own freedom through inquiry. And that was all written by Stephen Mitchell. So I have a couple more things that I'm going to read and then we will um, be wrapping it up for today and next time we will start on the first chapter if you guys want to take your time and work through this I know for me um, I'm excited there are areas of my life that I'm excited to stop having the same thoughts or stop having the same relationships or the same things go on so I'm pretty excited to do this work with you guys so I'm going on with the, the book here. The work is merely four questions. It's not even a thing. It has no motives, no strings. It's nothing without your answers. These four questions will join any program you've got and enhance it. Any religion you have, they'll enhance it. If you have no religion, they will bring you joy, and they'll burn up anything that isn't true for you. They'll burn through the reality that has always been waiting. How to read this book. The purpose of this book is your happiness. The work has worked for thousands of people, and loving what is will show you exactly how to use it in your own life. You begin with the problems that irritate and depress you. The book will show you how to write them down in form that is easy to investigate. Then it will introduce the four questions and show you how to apply them to your problems. At this point, you'll be able to see how the work can reveal solutions that are simple, radical, and life-changing. There are exercises that will teach you how to use the work with increasing depth and precision and show you how it can function in every situation. 
After doing the work on people in your life, you'll learn how to do it on issues that cause you the most pain. Money, for example, illness, injustice, self-hatred, or the fear of death. You'll also learn how to recognize the underlying beliefs that hide reality from your eyes and how to work with the self-judgments that upset you. Throughout the book, there will be many examples of people just like you doing the work. People who believe that their problems are unsolvable or who are sure that they have to suffer for the rest of their lives because a beloved child died or because they live with someone they no longer love. You will meet a mother distraught over a crying baby, a woman living in fear about the stock market, people terrorized by their thoughts about childhood trauma or just trying to get along with a difficult co-worker. You'll see how they came to find a way out of their suffering, and perhaps through them and the practical insights on the pages ahead, you'll find a way out of your own. Everyone learns the work on their own way. Some learn the process primarily by watching how the dialogues unfold. I encourage you to read them actively, looking inside yourself for your own answers as you read. Others learn the work strictly by doing it, inquiring into whatever is troubling them at the time, pen and paper in hand. I suggest that you read chapter 2 and possibly chapter 5 as well in order to absorb the basic instructions. You might then read each dialogue in sequence, but only if it feels helpful. If you feel like skipping around and going into the dialogues who whose topics particularly interest you, that's fine. Or you might prefer to follow the thread of instructions as they continue throughout the book and dip into dialogue only now and then. I trust that you'll do whatever works for you. We are entering the dimension where we have control, the inside. So that is just the, that's not even the actual book itself. That's just the, the preface, the introduction to the book. And if you're honest with yourself and you take a look, I know for me, you know, as I'm reading that and reflecting in certain areas in my own life, I can definitely see how some of my thoughts that have nothing to do with people I love keep coming up and it, you know, just habit. It's just what's in my brain. So I'm going to go forward and question a lot of that. And I'm looking forward to going through and reading with this and doing the work with you. Let me know. Contact me. There's a contact information on the website. I really appreciate it. I love it when people reach out to me. It's so fun. Uh, But contact me or go to the show notes and leave comments below. All you have to do, I think I changed it. So now, as long as you have a Facebook account and you're logged into Facebook, you can make comments on the bottom of the page through your Facebook. And, um, you know, let me know. Let all of us know. Maybe what are some of the things that you're working on or what came up for you? So my goal of addiction support has is and always has been to inspire hope into the people that love other people that are dealing with their addiction. And I know there's some of you that are in your recovery right now and you find inspiration in the podcast and I love that. I'm so glad you're here. And I know there's some of you out there that maybe you are wanting to be in recovery and you're wanting to get whole and heal and you're here because you find inspiration and hope and you know that it's possible when you listen to this podcast and I love you and I'm so glad you're here. And then there's other people like me that aren't sure what it's like to have addiction, but you know what it's like to have these thoughts just control and cause so much pain 
And, you know, when I was reading that, like Mary was saying, you know, I think that I think back to times in my life and I really want peace or I really want people to love me or like me. And so I've kept my mouth shut and haven't said what I really wanted, or I've done things that have compromised my integrity because I want that person to love me or, you know, maybe not use or who knows, there's a whole host of things that are coming up for me right now. So hopefully we can go on this journey together and heal some of those parts and come out on the other side as, you know, just having a stronger knowledge of who we are and what we are really about. I'm excited about that. One more thing before I let you guys go, I wanted to share a podcast with you that I was listening to earlier today, and that is Hal Elrod's uh, podcast is achieve your goals. So it is great if you're looking for something positive, if you're a goal setter, you want to be. I love how he's so awesome. So the podcast is Emotional Intelligence 3.0, Transforming Results Through Relationships. It's an hour long. It's pretty long, but it goes really deep into emotional intelligence and why it's important And so if this is something that you like, if you want to listen to it to get better in business, it's awesome. If you want to listen to it to get better in relationships, it's awesome. I found it really inspiring. I will link to it in the show notes so that way you can listen to it there as well. But um, yeah, I love listening to podcasts. So if you're like me and you can't get enough and you want to hear more, go check out Hal, H-A-L-L-R-O-D, E-L-R-O-D's podcast and um yeah, let me know what you think if if you like it. I think it was absolutely phenomenal. And with that, that wraps up our podcast this week. Love you guys. I look forward to going through this process with Byron Katie with you. And let's see what we can create on the other side. Hopefully a lot of peace, love, and happiness. Until next week, I love you. I see you surrounded with light and love. And just keep up the good work. You guys are amazing. Thank you for listening to the Addiction Support Podcast. Addiction support for family and friends from people who've been there. www.addictionsupportpodcast.com.